0: This morning's reading comes to us from Philemon 1 in the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister, Aphia, and to our fellow soldier, Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the heart of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you. Consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much of use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help him because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost anismus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So. If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor, for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Oh, and one more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to you soon. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This is one of the shortest letters, but also uh, one of the few letters that actually is uh, attributed to Paul as, as an author uh, of the book. So in this book, we, or in this letter, I should say, Paul... Meets Onesimus while he's in prison, uh, and kind of begins to make him sort of close kin in connection. Uh, and we don't really know if he's in a physical prison with like bars, or if he's perhaps on house arrest, which more more likely been how we had, how we would have met him. However, prison during that time, as well as prison in most non uh, uh, or in most third world countries, you depended upon other people to bring you your needs, whether that was food, whether that was water, whether that was clothing, whether that was medicine that was needed. And so it was very possible that there would have been early believers that would have gone to the prison to bring those things. And it's possible that Onesimus had become a Christian and was sent as the one to deliver things to Paul, and Paul would have met him then. Or if he was on house arrest, it's kind of like being in, you know, quarantine. You can't go anywhere. You need people to bring you things. So we don't really know how they made their connection, but they've made some connection here. And we find out that Onesimus is actually a slave uh, who has escaped his master. We don't actually know why he escaped his master. It's possible that it was maybe because he was abused, Uh, Maybe he was wronged in some way or maybe he wronged his master and he's afraid and so now he's decided to escape and run away. Uh, He could have done something that made his his slave owner cost him money, which would have then meant he would have costed him his life because most people were in slavery to pay off a debt or because they were conquered in war. And so if you're already giving your life as a payment for for debt, well, you can't give anything more to pay off that debt. Uh, And so his life could have been at loss uh, and so he might have ran because of that. Um, It's possible that maybe he even stole from him and ran away. We don't really know why he ran away. These are some of the reasons why slaves might have run away during that time. Slaves um, often at this time, though, like I said, were were foreign soldiers who often were conquered, their land was conquered, or their family, and then those people became slaves. Uh, It wasn't always just based on race or ethnicity. It's often based on who was conquered. It was also used as paying off debts. So sometimes family members would literally give off one of their kids to pay off a debt. As a slave, But also we know that if you didn't pay your taxes, the government would often make you a slave of the state. Uh, and we know that in some different forms, even in our country today, you don't become a slave. But if you don't pay your taxes or do tax evasion, what happens to you? You often end up in prison, depending upon the amount. So it's, it's interesting to think about that and, and the way we also think about modern-day slavery in the prison system. Uh, Paul writes these words, though, to Philemon. He says, Dear friend and co-worker, I think it's interesting that he, that he, he like establishes, here's our relationship, right? We're not just collegial, but we're friends. And I'm asking you this both as co-workers in Christ, but also I'm asking you this as a friend, to consider these things. Um, Onesimus, his, his name means useful, which is interesting. And it makes me wonder, was he given that name by his slave owner? Was that his real name? Or did he have a name before that? We may never know, but I do wonder. And I wonder how difficult it might have been for him to, 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 to discover and determine his new identity after having escaped here. Who would he become? It seems that he's serving or connecting in some way, deep way, with Paul. I wonder if, 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 if it was hard for him to find his own identity outside of being connected to another person, even if not as a slave. He asks Philemon in this text, he says, to free his slave but not to free his slave to become Paul's slave. He's making that very clear. He's, he's saying, look upon him equally. Look upon him as someone who, who is a friend and a companion, someone who can go with me on my missionary journeys when I get out of prison, someone who I can be in equal relationship with. In ancient Israel, almost anyone could have become a slave, honestly. Nearly 30 to 40% of the population were enslaved. Why? Because constant turnover of conquering of lands. Slavery was rampant and normal, and slaves were treated poorly, like property, and often killed for trying to run away. And yet, Paul sends him back, knowing that this could be how it ends. But he has enough belief in his stock and his relationship with Philemon that he believes that Philemon will look upon him and not kill him for escaping, but give him grace. It's a huge chance and free him. There's a quote from uh, creators of the Sanctified Art when they talk about this. They say, Paul pushes the challenge and challenges his readers to see the full humanity of Onesimus. Paul does not do so perfectly. He still does it blindly by the social structures of the day. But he does take big steps towards justice here. He steps towards equality and love, and we are called church to do the same. He he lived in a social context at the time where slavery was just normal practice. Yet in this moment, it seems like he's kind of butting up and pushing against the system a little bit. Maybe something's being peeled back for him. I'm sure all of us in this room at some point we, we can think about a social system or structure or belief that we had, and maybe started to get peeled back a little bit, and we go, well, maybe that's not right. Or maybe, maybe I've been seeing that differently. Maybe I have never seen that before. Or that really opens my eyes, and, and I can't help but stop and think of wondering if that's what's happening to Paul in this moment. He's wondering, you know, slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, quote from Paul, if that maybe all are equal in Christ. And all of a sudden, he's beginning to realize that treating certain people a negative way or differently, maybe that isn't actually how Christ would have acted. And so maybe Paul is beginning to see the world a little bit differently. You know, Paul kind of boasts in his letters about how he, like, follows the law perfectly. Like, there is no one who followed the law better than me, Paul says. I mean, it's kind of arrogant. Um, and I feel like maybe arrogance has got to be some type of law to break, right? But he's, he's, he's boasting it. It's like when someone says, I'm the most humble person. Really? Let's, talk, let's just think about that. Um, that doesn't make any sense. And, and yet in this moment, I, I wonder if something's chipping away at, at Paul's heart because he's learning to balance what it looks like to follow the law but also to be a person of love. That's what distinguished Jesus from the religious leaders of the day, wasn't it? The religious leaders knew the law. They knew it well. They lived it, they lived it to the T. And Jesus knew the law. And he knew it well. And he lived it to the T. But what made Jesus different than the religious leaders was that Jesus knew how to live into the law in love. And that set him apart from everyone else. That made him distinct and different. And for that very reason, I wonder if Paul looks to uh, Jesus and realizes that following the law isn't the end-all be-all if there is no love in it. And perhaps at this moment he's realizing that, yeah, maybe it's normal custom and Perhaps even the Hebrew Scriptures tell people who are slaves to abide and follow by it. And even Peter at the time, one of his other fellow apostles, says that slaves should submit to their masters. Yet in this moment he's beginning to wonder, hmm, but if this law doesn't allow one to love, perhaps this law has lost the whole heart of it. In what ways this morning are we like Philemon, sort of ignoring social change that we could help enact? And maybe we're being called like Philemon from a Paul to see something different. In what ways could we be like Paul, bending step by step the social arc of society towards more equity and justice? In what ways do we need to be less like their religious elite and learn to love and to balance love and law? Or perhaps even seeing where it is that the law is just causing more harm than good and maybe the law was never God's heart at all. Maybe it was man's heart trying to understand the heart of God but perhaps imperfectly. Paul couldn't change the whole system and structures of racism and prejudice and justice of his day, but he could do just a little bit. I don't know about you, but I know that when I watch the news, and and Libby, you you highlighted this earlier with the debate around masks online, I get so overwhelmed. I'm like, this problem just seems so big and so massive, and it's not just the mask. It's it's a variety of things that exist that are divisive in our country and our world today. And I think, I just want to throw my hands in the air and go, I give up, I'm just going to do me and you go do you, and this is that. Instead of allowing, as somebody highlighted earlier, using privilege and power to sort of shift and change. I think it was you, Mandy. Privilege and power and shift to, to shift and change the mind of Philemon that Paul had. But the thing is, is Paul couldn't overturn the whole system of slavery that existed for the day, but he had this one slave right in front of him that he could do something for. And that didn't overwhelm him. And if I step back and I think about the ways in which God puts people and and instances and moments in my life and platforms all the time, that I can do something in this person's life or in this space. And if we all could think like that, what a change the world would be. We can't do it all just like Paul couldn't do it all, but we can do it for one like Paul did for Onesimus. I find myself as we finish this, this series of Faces of Our Faith this week, considering all the faces we didn't talk about, there were so many, it was so hard to choose who we were going to talk about and dissect and, and discuss. We could have gone on and on about the sort of the, the, like the background, second tier characters of Scripture. But a few that I, I found myself considering uh, is the little boy who gives up his meager five loaves of bread and two fishes to feed the group of 5,000 to 15,000 people. Oh, the faith to be able to say, I'm going to give you my little bit of food to the disciples who then give it to Jesus to multiply. Oh, the faith. If we had faith like this child to believe that what little bit that we do have, we could do something with, and God would multiply it and feed and change a whole population. I saw myself also considering this week the woman with the issue of blood who bled for 12 years. As a Jewish woman, she would not have been allowed into her religious community because she was bleeding. For 12 years, she would have been isolated because she would have been considered unclean, unable to worship in temple, unable to commune with those who were also fellow believers. No one would have been allowed to touch her because they would have been deemed unclean. For 12 years, she has been isolated and kicked out and marginalized by her faith community. But in this moment, she reaches so deep down inside of her to just touch the hem of the garment of one more religious person to say, maybe this religious person will take me. Maybe this religious person will love me. I know that the faith communities have rejected me because they think that I'm ill and God hasn't healed me and that there's something wrong with me. And so for that reason, they need to keep their distance. But, but this religious person, I've heard Jesus, I've heard He loves people like me. I've heard that He doesn't follow the law so close that He just overlooks people like me on the margins the field. And so she digs deep, perhaps one last time as Jesus walks through the town, and she just touches the hem of his garment. Something that would have been unacceptable, and to think that she had not touched or been touched for 12 years. And in that very moment, Jesus doesn't just keep walking. (laughs) Who touched me? He says. Or perhaps he said, touched me that woman did jesus well that woman her faith to believe her faith to believe that she is lovable that she is not unclean that i do love her and to know that i have something that i can give her despite all she's been through and all the rejection and all the hurt and all the anger and all the disappointment, the fact that she would have enough faith to reach out and touch the hem of my garment, the one who has been called holy and the Messiah, that faith, that's the kind of faith the people I want to follow me and to build my church. The faith of a faith, the face of a faith like that. So what needs, church, do you see around you? What do you sense the Spirit calling you to, to give you, to say, to sacrifice? What is the Spirit calling you to say, or to go, or to do, or to serve, or to be, or to love, or to read, or to see, or to listen to, or to multiply, or to trust again after so much hurt and pain? Where is the Spirit calling you? When I was candidating almost three years ago, this month, to be a part of, Amago Day as a co-pastor, there was a long gauntlet weekend lined up for me. It was three days of meeting with committees and groups and people and all these different age groups, and it was constant. Uh, my, 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 my second night here, they literally, we literally had things from 8 in the morning all the way until I got home at 11 o'clock that night because we had a game night that evening here at the church with kids and families, and I was exhausted by the time I came to the game night. And then I knew I had to get up the next morning and I had to preach. And I, I wanted to have energy and be excited for that. And then I knew that after church, there was going to be a Q&A. And then, and then there was a small window of time in the afternoon that I had. Before that evening, I met again with all the core leaders at Imago. It was a full agenda. We learned our lesson. Didn't put Pastor Melinda through all of it. But I got this text from Karen Walters. And uh, she said I could share this story this morning. And Karen Walters was on the search committee that was looking for me, I believe it was. And she said, hey, you've got a long agenda of all these things that you're doing while you're here. And I looked at it and I thought, boy, if I was him, and she's also in Enneagram Theory, so she gets me, she said, I would really need a break in the middle of the afternoon on Sunday, just like take a nap. But I checked out of my hotel Sunday morning because I was going back Sunday night. And so she said, why don't you come over to my house after church after the discussion, and why don't you take a nap in my guest room? She doesn't know me. I definitely did not know her at all. And yet, here was this woman who just stepped back enough to go, if I was him, this is what I would need. How I can meet that need. I have a guest room. Come. Prepare a guest room for me, Paul says, right at the end of his text. That's what made me think of this most. And here I came on a Sunday afternoon... I walked into her house, and I got to meet her and hear a little bit about her story. And I've shared her story before, and I'd be glad to share more of it again. And she, she has shared it before publicly, but about her relationship with her ex-husband and how she loved him through some really difficult uh, waters in their marriage. And I got to hear the story, and it touched me and encouraged me and solidified for me in so many ways. that this was God, where God was calling me. And I went in that back bedroom, and I just passed out. And she had set it up so perfectly and nice, and she had a fan and fluffy pillows, and the blinds were closed. And when I came to, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in, I am just dazed and confused. I only had a short window of time. And She said, did you rest? And I said, oh, did I ever? And I thanked her, and I went on my way. And I stopped, and I, and, and I can't help it now, as Karen has moved just uh, last month now, is no longer a part of our faith community in the way in person but virtually I stopped and I was considering uh, the ways I wanted to share with her that she's touched my life, and this was one of them. She she couldn't do everything for everybody at all times. She actually couldn't even come to in-person worship because she needed to be at home with her husband to care for him so she would watch the services online. But this, this was something she could do. And did she do it? Yes. And did it make all the difference for me? Absolutely. I think about Kelly Cochran Coleman there in the back row there and all the ways in which she is just so faithful to tend to our community garden out behind us, which I saw this week some folks in the neighborhood and they're picking vegetables and got a call this week about if we had a pantry. I said, we don't have a specific pantry, but we have a huge community garden full of fresh produce for you. And they were ecstatic. And she she, she spends a lot of time, her and Shannon, uh, out there working in the garden and tending to it, and yet, amidst all of the long list of things that she has to do, amidst taking care of all of her children and taking care of her going to, going to school and working on a, a, a job, what I love to see what Kelly does so often is when there are little children out there, kids who go to Amago and kids who are part of the preschool, Kelly never is so wrapped up in her work that she can't stop. And over and over again, I've seen her bend down and show kids, now this is the color it is when you get ready to pick it or this is the color it is when you can't pick it but when it gets to this point then it's about time and this is how you plant this here and you have to space these many things apart and just a few months ago someone at Amago had texted me and said I hope you know how much it means to me to be in a faith community where people really care about children that they're not the future of the church that they are the church now and she said Kelly took this time to show our son how to do the uh, how to plant and to harvest and to determine if something was ready for picking. And she said, when we got home today, we went out in the garden, she said, he he said, let me tell you mom how to do this, Kelly told me. I stopped and I thought, wow, what a beautiful picture and reminder to me of the times when I get so wrapped up and I go, 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 and I got to get all my tasks done and to do all of my things that I forget about the people in which I'm doing them for, who I'm doing them with. But Kelly reminds me to stop, to pause, to be present to the needs around me. Kelly has a lot on her plate. But she can stop every so often and make a difference in one child's life in another child's life. Paul couldn't change it and couldn't do it all, could he? Paul couldn't obtain the whole system of slavery, but Paul could do it for this one man, Onesimus. And we look at through church history, and Onesimus was freed. And Onesimus is believed in in the Greek Orthodox Church that he went on to become a bishop. Paul set a new precedent, a new way of seeing the world. He made a difference for one person. And that's enough. See, so begin to land this message this morning. I, I want us to ask those questions that I asked a moment ago. What is it, where is it that you see the Spirit leading you to give, to say, to sacrifice, to go, to do, to serve, to be, to love, to read, to listen, to multiply, to trust again? It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can be as simple as offering up your guest room or taking the moment to teach a child. My grandma, recently talking on the phone with her, she started to yelp over the phone as we were on the phone together. And I said, what's going on? And she said, I can see some tulips popping up in the far part of the backyard. I never used to really care about flowers and things in the yard, but now that I have my first home, those things excite me too. And I thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. I said, why are you so excited, though? You seem like really excited. And she said, you won't believe this. She says, your cousin and I planted those in the backyard when he was a little kid years and years ago. And she said, and those tulips have not come up in so many years. She said, but your dad's been back there working and tilling up the soil. And she said, and I can't believe those came up. They reminded me of all the memories of when you kids were small and would come over to our house. And all the seeds we planted and the things we did... and to think all these years later... that tulip is still coming up. Have you ever noticed, church, that sometimes the most beautiful flowers are never planted... but often they just come up arbitrarily when the season is right? And sometimes the flowers that we plant don't come up... and they lay dormant for a season... and the, and the seeds that we plant don't come up when we expected them... but amidst the craziness of this world that sometimes it's just just the thing we need to sort of till up the soil and to make things new again so that something can break up out of the soil for a season, bringing something new that was planted long ago to come forth. Some of us, we will do things like Paul has done. We'll advocate and care for and love and consider others beyond ourselves, even use our own privileges and powers for it, and we won't see things right away. Or maybe we'll see something at first and then it will lay dormant. But know that all that you do to love others well, it is like a seed. And it will come forth in the right season at the right time. Nothing is done in vain. I trust and I believe and I know that this writing from Paul in the book of Philemon was one of the main books that the civil rights leaders of the black church in the U.S. leaned upon to say that God did not endorse slavery. Even amidst those who were slave owners and those who believed in segregation used this book to present the same idea. I am so grateful, Danny. Where did he go? He's behind me. That's a full turn. I am so grateful that they did include this one book in there. That's just so few verses because that one book, it planted a seed that hundreds of years later made the way for slavery to be abolished in many nations around the world. It's a seed that came forth because Paul said, for one, I will seek freedom. For one, I will love over the law. May we be a church that loves well. We can't do it all, but we can do a little. We can plant seeds, and the harvest will be great.